You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to our special Living for the Bond series. Now, even though I love movies of all types from all different eras, my overall favorite film franchise is the James Bond series, which technically started in 1962 with the release of Dr. No, which starred Sean Connery and was directed by Terrence Young. This franchise has now endured for over almost six decades. And over the next two months, I'll be revisiting one entry starring a different Bond every two weeks, leading up to the upcoming U.S. release of the 25th official installment of this franchise, No Time to Die, which is coming out on October 8th, I hope. We are here to discuss License to Kill, which came out in 1989 and was directed by John Glenn. How many times can one man leave you breathless? Timothy Dalton is James Bond, 007. License to kill. It stars Timothy Dalton, Carrie Lowell, Robert Davi, Talisa Soto, David Hedison, Desmond Llewellyn, Frank McRae, and Benicio Del Toro in one of his earliest roles. The genre would be spy action thriller. Now, we still don't know what the fate is for the COVID-delayed No Time to Die, which is the next Bond film. As of this point, I don't think there was another film in the history of the Bond franchise that was more a victim of bad timing than this 1989 gem. License to Kill came out in the middle of an absurdly packed marketplace, which not only included the first Batman film, which was huge, couldn't avoid it, but also you had sequels to Lethal Weapon, Indiana Jones, Karate Kid, Ghostbusters, and Star Trek. So basically, every major franchise that wasn't starring Sylvester Stallone at the time had just come out with a sequel. And it was at this time that Eon, which is the production company that owns Bond, they chose this time to release the most unbondiest Bond film in 20 years. License to Kill was mocked along the lines of being called a special episode of Miami Vice featuring James Bond for many years after its initial disappointing reception. And yet, it caught me at the right time because I have always really enjoyed this film. The summer of 89 was a huge time at the multiplex for a 14-year-old boy, like myself, and there were only three films I saw multiple times in theaters that summer. This, The Abyss, and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. James Cameron, Bond, and Indy were my favorites at the time. I guess not much has changed decades later. Part of the reason for the mixed reception for this film was the overall story. You see, this was not your typical Bond film at the time. But since then, it actually feels like every other entry in the 007 franchise, including I think half the Daniel Craig movies, they have featured our protagonist going rogue, usually out for revenge or something. Still, this was the first time that it happened in the franchise, and it remains one of the best. You have a job to do. I expect you're on a plane this afternoon. I haven't finished here, sir. Leave it to the Americans. It's their mess. Let them clear it up. Sir, they're not going to do anything. I owe it to Leiter. He's put his life on the line for me many times. Oh, spare me this sentimental rubbish. He knew the risks. And his wife? This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You have an assignment. And I expect you to carry it out objectively and professionally. Then you have my resignation, sir. We're not a country club, 007. 
effective immediately. Your license to kill is revoked. Now, this being his second film, Timothy Dalton is clearly comfortable in this role. And while he's playing it very serious and ruthless, he's still fun to watch. So basically, we see Bond go off on a crusade for revenge. And the inciting incident for this revenge is a pretty brutal incident involving his CIA brother, Felix Leiter. Felix is maimed by a shark while his newlywed wife is murdered. It's a pretty brutal scene. And it's all at the orders of Franz Sanchez, who is a drug lord. Now, this film definitely pushes the boundaries of PG-13 gore as it does not flinch away from some genuinely ugly violence. And that might have been one of the reasons it underperformed. But it's all at the service of a pretty clever plot where we see Dalton's Bond seek his revenge by infiltrating the ranks of the drug cartel led by Franz Sanchez. And Sanchez is played brilliantly by Robert Davi. As it turns out, both of these men are both ruthless and charming when they need to be. And part of the fun of License to Kill is watching Bond play the long con for a change. Contrary to what appeared to be on the surface to be a film trying to compete with the likes of Lethal Weapon or Commando, we were not watching a Martin Riggs or a John Matrix just go all out against his enemy with guns a-blazing. Nope, this was watching our hero use his wits to gain Sanchez's trust as he tried methodically to bring down his criminal organization. And don't worry, there's plenty of violence along the way, but it was like something out of a Kurosawa film, which is what made it so cool. Well, we both had close calls last night. You were just in time. Things were about to turn nasty. Who were those guys? Freelance hit team. What did they want with you? One of them must have recognized me in the casino. They were afraid I'd warn you, spoil their plans. So you knew them? I used to work for the British government. We kept dossiers on such people. Hmm. British agent. I knew it. Gracias. You have class. Those men try to kill me. Who would do such a thing? Someone close to you. Cream sugar? No. And beyond that, Dalton is surrounded by several players which elevate the film around him. Now, this wasn't the case with his previous film, The Living Daylights, which I still really liked. And that film was actually dragged down quite a bit by its main villains and the main Bond girl, who were both pretty bland. But Davi Sanchez is really one of the best. He's sharply dressed, and he's generally with a very calm, good-natured demeanor. But when he's crossed, he can be genuinely scary. Robert Davi plays him with a lot of intelligence, as he always seems to be sizing up everyone he encounters, but is always conscious of projecting loyalty to those around him. Now, considering how many times we've seen the trope of the ruthless drug lord, and this happens so many times in the 80s, and since his film's release, Franz Sanchez stands out as one of the fresher, more unique portrayals of this kind of character, right up there with Tony Montana from Scarface or Nino Brown from New Jack City. Carrie Lowell plays Pam Bouvier, the American operative who Bond aligns with on his mission to take down Sanchez, and she's fantastic too. We had also seen the Bond trope of the female operative who initially feels like his mirror image, but more often than not, this kind of character would be relegated to becoming a damsel in distress by the third act. But not this time, as Lowell's Bouvier really is Bond's equal, and she's a joy to watch. Now, of course, she looks great in a slinky sequin dress in the grand tradition of Bond girls, but she brings something to the mission at hand. She actually has more experience than Bond within this particular world. Lowell holds her own in all the action sequences, along with bringing some humor to the proceedings, as she's someone who's sometimes at a loss as to why Bond is able to get away with some of the stuff he pulls, and she'll call him out for it. Don't move. Relax. It's a bulletproof vest. This Kevlar 
Hey! You're bloody lucky to be alive! It's not locked! It's experience! A few inches higher, it'd have been your head! Look, I just saved your life back there. If it wasn't for me, your ass would have been nailed to the wall. You saved my life? Yes! It's a tough business, you pick Miss Bouvier. Leave it to the professionals. Look, pal, I was an army pilot. I have flown to the toughest hellholes in South America, and I will not have you lecture me about professionalism. Beyond that, we get a cool appearance by a young, fresh-faced, yet menacing Benicio Del Toro. This was only his second film role. And he plays Dario, who is Sanchez's main henchman. Now, Del Toro isn't actually given much dialogue in this role. He definitely leaves his mark. And you cannot take your eyes off him anytime he appears on screen. And we are also treated to the ever-delightful Desmond Llewellyn playing Q for the 14th time. And bringing a new spin to the character as we actually get to see him in the field for the first time alongside Bond. As to be expected, he even provides some nifty gadgets, including plastic explosive in the form of, quote, dentonite toothpaste, and what I still consider to be one of the most underrated gadgets in Bond canon. That's the signature gun, where you have to put your palm up to the handle of the gun so it reads your identity, so only you can use that gun. It's such an obviously clever concept for a super spy, it kind of made sense that they actually brought this back decades later for Skyfall. And the whole shebang culminates in a very exciting climax along mountainous roads revolving mainly around four large tanker trucks filled with a mixture of gasoline and cocaine and a crop duster. Now, Bond is on the ground maneuvering his way among these trucks with Sanchez, and his goons are trying to kill him, while Bouvier is flying that crop duster above to provide some necessary air support. I swear, the things we see these trucks doing, mainly with Bond driving, actually, they literally defy physics at several moments, but it's also beautifully executed in camera that it still remains one of the more thrilling climaxes of any film in the franchise's history. Probably right up there alongside the siege of Blofeld's volcano lair in You Only Live Twice. Great stuff. Now, the film is not without its flaws. There's a shoehorned-in romance between Bond and Bouvier, which never really seems necessary, nor that developed. There's also an extended cameo from Wayne Newton, the singer, which feels like it's out of a different, much sillier movie. Also, David Hedison's performance as Felix Leiter, it takes a strange turn towards the end. And there is one minor subplot involving ninjas that really doesn't need to be there. So yes, the film is a bit overstuffed and probably could be trimmed by at least 10 minutes. But overall, License to Kill is a near-perfect revenge thriller. Very much of its time, yet also a bit ahead of its time. There are definitely story and tone elements here, which were derided at the time of release, but they were later praised when they were used in more recent installments starring Daniel Craig. This remains one of the best Bond films ever. And that brings me to the categories. Now, because we are doing the Living for the Bond series, we have an additional category, and that would be the Best Bond Bit. This series has so many elements which carry over from installment to installment. Opening credit sequence, Bond girls, henchmen, villains lair, gadgets, cold opens, final fights, you name it. And this award goes to the one element of this Bond film which stands out the most for this particular entry in the Bond franchise. Now, it's a very close call between this and The Spy Who Loved Me, but License to Kill might have the best cold open of any film in the franchise's history, meaning the sequence that sets up the movie before the opening credits. Not only is this the rare cold open which sets the rest of the plot in motion, but it features incredible stunt work, sharp standout Bond moments, a menacing intro to our villain, and a pretty witty ending. It's like a great mini-movie into itself for about five to ten minutes. So basically, it starts in Miami with a high-risk entrance via prop plane by Sanchez, 
and a few of his goons to extract his girlfriend, Lupe. The only reason he's there is because she's been sleeping with another man. And Sanchez wants to make a personal statement against her and the man she's having an affair with. And boy, does he. What did he promise you? His heart? Give her his heart. The DEA and FBI, they see this as a rare opportunity to catch this notorious drug lord while he's on American soil. So they come calling. And now we cut to a limo driving to a wedding with Bond and his best friend, CIA operative Felix Leiter, who's lucky groom. They're dressed in fancy gray tuxes with top hats, no less. And they're racing to get to that church on time. And of course, they're pulled over by local government officials who want to alert Leiter about Sanchez being nearby. He's likely to leave soon, and he's likely to flee to Cuba where there's no extradition. So time is of the essence. They want Leiter to go help them nab him. And guess who volunteers to come along to help? It's Bond, of course. He takes the initiative while they're flying in a Coast Guard rescue copter, not far behind Sanchez's plane as they hover just above. Bond volunteers to lower himself down onto the rear wing of the plane via grappling hook. He then wrangles the hook around the rear wing of the plane. And in a stunt that apparently was Christopher Nolan's inspiration for Bane's plane hijacking cold open in The Dark Knight Rises, and this would be decades later. Basically, that opening scene where Bane is flying and he captures the other plane... We see the plane then face downward, and they've captured Sanchez. He'll be in Cuban airspace in 20 minutes. He hasn't got away yet. What the hell are you doing? Let's go fishing! And as we see our villain helplessly looking down as they start to descend, guess what he's looking at on the ground? It's the wedding, of course. There's a large church with lots of people gathering around. We watch the groom and best man parachute down in their tuxedos to the amazement of the crowd below. And just as we see them entering the church with their parachutes dragging behind them out the door while the wedding march plays, we then cut to the opening credit sequence. Now, come on. Does a Bond film get any better than that? That brings me to the next category, which is Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film, especially Bond films. Speaking of that opening credit sequence, we are then treated to what I consider to be one of the more underrated Bond themes, and that's the title track by Gladys Knight. Gladys Knight has always had some pipes on her, and she uses them well for this mid-tempo power ballad, which does have a very familiar-sounding melody. And that melody might be the reason why so many Bond fans have generally been dismissive of this song, because it's pretty much the same exact melody as Shirley Bassey's Goldfinger from just over 20 years prior. So yes, this song does pretty much lift that melody, but my counter to that would be, so what? I mean, it's still within the same franchise. Who says you can't recycle your own best bits? Doesn't pretty much every major film franchise do that anyway? <coughs> Star Wars. <laughs> a gorgeous song is still a gorgeous song. And props to the writers, Jeffrey Cohen, Narada Walden, and Walter Afensieff, if I'm pronouncing it right, 
for taking a pretty much unromantic phrase like license to kill and fitting it nicely into a love song. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, I'm not the first one to say this, nor will I be the last, but bottom line, Timothy Dalton was playing the right type of James Bond for just the wrong time. I really like both of his films he did playing this character. And as flawed as the previous film, The Living Daylights, was, those flaws had nothing to do with him. He just had the misfortune of following a run of 15 years of Roger Moore playing this character, to significant popularity. And Moore's interpretation of Bond was a much more lighter, more charming Bond. So general audiences, and even many of the most devoted fans, they just weren't ready for a more serious interpretation of this character, which Dalton provided. This brings me to the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this film. License to Kill remains one of the most violent films in the history of this franchise, and never more so than a pretty gruesome, but memorable scene about two-thirds of the way through, which also happens to be my personal signature moment for this film. Now, among his efforts to take down Sanchez's organization from the inside, Bond has effectively framed one of the drug lord's main vendors, the extremely slimy Milton Crest, who runs a boating fleet and is played with pitch-perfect slime by Anthony Zerby. Bond and Bouvier have just planted a significant amount of money in a decompression chamber on Milton Crest's main boat right before, as it turns out, Sanchez comes aboard and sends his goons to scope around trying to find this missing cash. The kicker is that Bond had stolen this money from Crest earlier in the film, but no one on the boat got a particularly good look at him, nor could identify him when he did it. This money was owed to Sanchez, and needless to say, he doesn't particularly believe Crest when he's told that some mysterious figure stole the money. So when his goons find this cash laying around in this section of Crest's boat, well, Sanchez doesn't exactly take it well either. Sanchez throws him in the decompression chamber and then turns it up before using an axe to chop the line of air being pushed through, thus accelerating the decompression process. And the result is that we get to see Milton Crest's face decompress as Bond witnesses this from a hidden spot in that same room. He looks satisfied with what he's accomplished, but he's also a bit unnerved. It's quite the image. And after it's done, what we hear Sanchez say is perfect. And that brings me to the final category, and that would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Even though I have to give props to T-Doll for just how well he plays Bond, and how his portrayal of 007 was basically ahead of its time, my MVP has to go to Robert Davi for his performance as Sanchez. As I said before, he brings not only a pretty unique spin to the trope of the Bond villain, but also to the trope of the ruthless drug lord. 
It's likely not an accident that this character was created by writers Michael G. Wilson and Richard Maybaum in the wake of more than a decade of notoriety for the famous Pablo Escobar, the real-life drug kingpin who was dubbed the king of cocaine in the 1980s. Escobar at one point amassed a record-setting fortune of more than $30 billion. He had major influence over the Colombian government during his reign, and he was generally viewed by others around him as a very affable, likable guy who inspired loyalty. There are just so many obvious parallels between Sanchez and Escobar, but they're used very organically at the service of the story. Sanchez is the Bond version of Escobar, and Davi plays him with just the right mix of charisma and menace to help elevate this film into a highly entertaining chess match between two very worthy opponents. It's really fun to watch Davi and Dalton face off. Just watching how dismissive Sanchez is towards the actual president of the country where he resides pretty much says it all. Davi plays a great villain, and that's a big part of why this is a great Bond film. There's been a mistake with my check. Look at it. It's half the usual amount. You were very quiet when I was arrested. Remember, you're only president for life. My overall rating for License to Kill would be four and a half stars out of five. This is probably in my top five for the whole franchise, and I highly recommend it. It's available to rent or buy on all streaming platforms. And that ends another vengeful review. Please subscribe to the Living for the Cinema podcast. Follow and like us on Facebook and Instagram. If you're interested in reading more reviews of mine, you can find them on Letterboxd. Join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.